We're going to look at Psalm 90 this morning. I guess you figured that out already. So if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 90, uh, turn on your digital devices. We'll get started. Uh, let me just give you an editorial comment as, as we do. We're going to look at one aspect of the psalm this morning. I'm easily distracted. There's so much theology in these 17 verses. We could spend three Sundays kind of unpacking it. We're not. Michael's back next week. No worries. Uh, but for this morning, what I want to look at is one idea that hopefully we can hang on to and take away. And it's the word perspective. You know, perspective is an art word. You know, it's basically taking a piece of paper that's one-dimensional and somehow putting an image on that piece of paper that brings out all three dimensions of something that's real. So there's, there's some magic to that. There's some giftedness and skill to that. And we've kind of co-opted that word over history to reflect our opinion on things, how we might rationalize the world that we live in, how we see ourselves in that world. That's all perspective. Let me give you an example let me first ask a question. Do we have any Major League Baseball fans here in the room? Okay, there's no team here, but there's like 20 people that have raised their hand, so at least I know 20 folks are going to understand what I'm talking about. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the MLB inducted new members into their Hall of Fame. Uh, there was this fella, Mario Rivera. Somebody j- All right, Mariano. See, I told you, I'm not a baseball guy. That's why I'm, I'm keep me honest here. Uh, you know, I, I really don't pay a lot of attention to that sport, but I paid attention to him because I've seen him now do three different interviews. And what's come to me is he's really serious about his faith. Now, this is a guy who grew up in Panama, didn't have a whole lot as he was growing up, and he was gifted as a pitcher, and he ended up being with the New York Yankees. Oh, how long? A long time, huh? His whole career? Started out in the Yankees as a a starter, then became a relief pitcher, and ultimately ended as the closer for the Yankees. And what struck me about the interviews that I heard was he's he's one of the only guys ever to be inducted the year he was eligible, and he got 100% of the vote. Everybody said yes. I'm looking at baseball fans over here that know about baseball. Is there anybody else that got 100%? So this is guy like the only guy, right? And I watched his interview when he was uh, receiving the award, and his first statement was about who he describes as the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he has no gifting other than what the Lord Jesus Christ gave him. And, and, and he went on to, to talk longer, and I thought it was just beautiful. But then I learned that the media went after him. You know, the sports media and broadcasters went after him because he had spiritualized something that was really sports. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but, you know, I didn't like it. I didn't like hearing that. A couple of days later, I saw him interviewed on a news program. And he told this story. He said, well, the reality is, had it not been God in my life, what kid from Panama could end up in Major League Baseball? And if that doesn't get you, what major league ball player who comes to play major league ball and is supposed to be a starter, can't do that well, ends up then as a reliever, not really good at that, ends up as a closer, can really say he's all that great. 
And then he related a story. He said, after I'd gone through that transition and I was now just being used basically from the bullpen to close out games, the general manager came to me of the Yankees and he said to me, as long as I am part of the Yankees organization, you will always be the closer for this team. Now, what caught my attention wasn't that the rest of his career was full of all kinds of accolades, you know, MVP slots and all-star slots and being inducted into Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. But what struck me was how he characterized the rest of his career in baseball where he got the accolades. And he said this, well, my life turned then because right after that conversation, the following week, God intervened in my life and gave me my cutter pitch. And that's how I struck everybody out. Now, I hear pro sports guys all the time talk about their faith. I've never heard a guy talk about it at that level of detail. That's perspective from a Christian point of view that it's not some esoteric thing. It's about the way that he approached the mundane things in his life the everyday moments of his life. Let's, let's do another one. Could you put up that little slide I have? This is for kids. I love kids. I have no idea what they teach kids in school anymore. Who is this person? <laughs> Only kids can answer. Does anybody know who that is? Yes, sir. Who is it? Thank you. <laughs> I was kind of worried that we don't even talk about our nation's history anymore. Let me tell you a quick little story about perspective about George. If you don't know his history, six foot two guy. Man's man, a lot of presence. You know, the average height, Mike, I'm talking to you now, the average height of guys back then was about 5'7", you know? So he towered over people. He had presence, but he didn't have the greatest life growing up. He had a rich uncle, though, that was really well-known in Virginia and had amassed a huge fortune in real estate and was involved in politics and the military. So George is growing up watching him and decides, I'm going to be wealthy and powerful. So he goes to the surveyor school. Think about this. This is a great business strategy for you young people if you haven't worked it out yet. He concluded that if he could become a prominent surveyor, he would know when any cool real estate came on the market, and he could go get it at a cheap price before anybody else could. Let me just summarize it to say he was all about success. That's all that mattered to George Washington. Make money, create wealth, be important. Now, it happens that his uncle died at an early age, and his, his aunt, his uncle's wife, passed on shortly after, and he received the entire estate of his uncle, which included Mount Vernon, by the way. He got it, you know, as, as part of the estate from his uncle, and he became a very, very wealthy man. Now, why do I tell you that story? It's simply to ask this question. He's got all he ever wanted. He's got all the power he needs. He's well-known. He's accomplished his life mission. And here's these 13 colonies that are about to get in this big fight with Great Britain. Why did he walk away from that to become the head of the military for this little scraggly bunch of folks that were going to go up against the world's greatest power? I mean, that kind of stuff strikes me. Well, it has to do with perspective. Something, something more important than his wealth gave him different perspective. If, I don't know if many of you folks have read Eric Metaxas. Let me describe to you what he says about that. Washington was an extremely ambitious young man who worked hard to achieve fame, glory, and riches 
Yet at a pivotal moment in American history, he did something so selfless that it's difficult to fully fathom. He voluntarily gave up incredible power, and he is remembered as an American Moses, loaned to the Americans from God. Not bad on your tombstone, maybe, huh? Washington, he, got mon- he has monuments everywhere, though. Here, here's how Eric wraps it up. If you wonder whether one person's actions can matter, and if you wonder whether character matters, you needn't look any further. Perspective. And what I want to suggest to all of us this morning is that our perspective matters. And as individuals, we matter before a holy and righteous God. And what we do every day really does matter. Now this morning, we're going to look at another guy, Moses. I love kid stuff. I've already told you that. Uh, Don't know if I got these pictures from your Bible, Christy, but these are kids' pictures. We could spend days talking about Moses and his life. These are just pictures that struck me. You know, even as a baby, you know, Pharaoh's killing all of the Israel's sons, and he, his mom puts him in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And hey, this is, not, is this not God's intervention? His mother ends up working for Pharaoh's daughter, raising her own son. I mean, this stuff is amazing stuff. But in spite of that, Moses' life wasn't a straight line. He had hills and valleys. He had, you know, reluctance in a lot of different ways. Remember, he gets in trouble when he becomes an adult by coming alongside some of his Israel family genealogical members, and he ends up killing an Egyptian, and he runs off. Uh, even when he runs off, though, he can't help himself. He comes alongside in, the, in this new area that he runs off to. He helps this woman that's you know, getting water and ends up marrying her. He meets God, the burning bush, and God gives him a mission. But even with the mission, look, he ends up back in, in uh, Pharaoh's court, reluctantly asking for his brother to be of help to him. And in the end, God uses him to release the nation of Israel to go initially out into the wilderness, but ultimately to get to the promised land. I could go on and on. Moses is a really important character in the Bible, and this is the only psalm that he writes. Let me share with you how Charles Spurgeon describes Moses. Who's Moses? He's a man of God. He's chosen of God. He's inspired of God. He's honored of God. He's faithful to God. He is God's man. I want you to just take that in for a second. You could say man or a woman. What if that's being said about you? Wouldn't that be a good outcome for your life? It's hard to make a statement about Moses without acknowledging that God was central in his life. Moses wasn't the center in his own mind. God was the center for him. Well, let's take quick look at just some introductory comments, and then I'm going to breeze through Psalm 90 to give you a couple of ideas to hang on to about perspective. So first, Psalm 90 is a worship psalm. It's broken into three sections. The first two verses are about praise. The next verses from verse 3 through 11, if you look at it and you want to mark it up in your Bible, uh, most theologians would call it a lament, which is a style of genre and writing for Uh, those at this time that lived. I like to call it reflection. 
You know, it's that time where you're, you're thinking about life and how you fit in. And then verses 12 through 17, they, they morph into a prayer to God. So we're going to take a look at it in those three ways. A couple of things to remember from a thematic point of view, Psalms falls kind of into three natural sections. So when they were collecting the Psalms to be used for worship for the choirs, you know, they kind of categorized them in different sections. So the first 41 Psalms, or if what I've told you last week was book one, are very personal. You know, they're heartfelt things from one person to their God. The second section, which goes from Psalm 42 to Psalm 80, are more national. You know, they're about the nation of Israel and Israel's relationship to their God. And then beginning in Psalm 90 and going all the way to Psalm 150, uh, the fancy word is liturgical. All that means is these were the ones that were written for public worship. These are the ones that folks enjoyed together to be reminded of their holy God. And Psalm 90 fits as a transition psalm between that second group that are national and this third group that are liturgical. Let's keep going on here just for you Bible study students if you need contextual information. This psalm is thought to have been written around 1400 B.C. Uh, The geography for where the psalm is written, we believe it's Moses in the wilderness time. So they've left Egypt. They have yet to go into the promised land. They are in the wilderness. It happens to be, from a chronological point of view, the earliest written psalm that we have a record of. So when it was collected, it fit into the natural collection of public worship. But from a point of when it was written, it's the oldest psalm. And naturally, the author is Moses One more background thing here before we dive into the passage itself. Take a look at the, uh, where you see in the passage the word Lord used. Now in verse 1 when you see Lord, it's the word Adonai. Now a great way to kind of translate that is by the word majesty. He is above us. Now if you look at what most theologians write, and I have I've quoted one here, a fellow by the name of Gleason Archer, who writes uh, an overview of the Old Testament. He says, when you think of Adonai, it kind of goes like this. We are his to command, and he is ours to enjoy. I kind of like that statement. Uh, he's above us, but yet he's not, he's not holding himself away from us. He's drawing us into us. The second word for Lord that's used in this particular psalm is Jehovah. Now, that's found in verse 13, kind of takes on the idea of the eternal covenant-keeping living one. Now, it kind of is related to the idea of Yahweh, that memorial name, I am. And in many cases, you know, one of the things that Archer makes a comment about, that when Jehovah was used separate from the descriptor, sometimes it's Jehovah Jireh. There's other names that kind of get attached to this. But when Jehovah is used, it was often reserved for the priest to speak out loud, and the people wouldn't. So it's, it's an important word. Uh, in the Hebrew language and in this particular text. Okay, ready? I'm going to fly right through 17 verses with you and just make some comments about perspective. Verses 1 and 2. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, where you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is an interesting, you know, play on words here. It takes us back to Genesis 1 when it says you gave birth to the earth. It's the idea 
of God being the master over the universe. You know, if you look in Genesis 1, in each day of the creation, one of the things that precedes the description of each day of that creation are these simple words that we translate into English, and God said. By God's word alone, by him opening his mouth, all creation has come into being. Here, Moses says, you gave birth to the earth. The other thing he says at the very end of these first two verses is, you are God. There's a declaration here that is not accidental. It's purposeful. It's certain. There's an absoluteness to the way that Moses concludes these opening thoughts about God being not limited by time. Everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, it's interesting i got to believe that Moses is thinking about his own life experiences. And if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, that's when he first is introduced to what God's plan is for him. And here's what God says to him then. They're about three months out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. The whining has already begun of what is to transpire for them for the next 40 years. And here's what God says to Moses. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And he says at the very end of that verse, for all the earth is mine. Now imagine Moses' understanding that he was God's and God was everything. And he comes to these verses with that idea. Now if we were to dig deeper down into Moses' life, I've got on the bottom of this slide another reference, Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 and 27. So I've told you that he's writing these two verses at the time they're early in the wilderness. They have yet to arrive at the promised land. Well, right before they enter the promised land, remember Moses doesn't get to enter. He ends up on this big cliff overlooking the promised land with God, and it's here that God takes him away, that he dies. Well, right before that, because Moses knew he would not enter the promised land, he gave a blessing to Israel. Now, I want you to notice about 30 or 40 years has passed in his life. And a lot's happened in those 30 or 40 years. Some of us might say good, bad, and indifferent. But a lot's happened. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 33. There is none like the God of Israel. There's none like the God of Israel. He who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place or a refuge. And underneath are his everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy before you. Don't forget that as you enter that promised land, that time of peace and comfort in your life. I just make this observation that I'd suggest that we carry through as we look at the remainder of this psalm. What's Moses' perspective? Both God is worthy of praise, and the way that I praise him, when I do return that praise to him, is in how I live. It's not my words. It's not any kind of games I play. It's not tradition because I'm following along what my parents did or what the generations before me did. Moses' perspective is direct. He didn't change his mind from that time where they entered the wilderness at the beginning and gives us Psalm 90 to the time that they were definitely going to enter the promised land. His belief and trust in God was stayed and true. God is worthy of praise, and I praise him in the way I live. Isaiah says it this way, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, 
The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. If you read the end of that, I don't know if you guys remember, you know, the movie, Remember the Titans? You know, they quote the end of this passage when they're standing inside this gym and the team is falling apart and they're fighting with each other and they don't know if they're going to win another game. And one of the guys is a believer that, you know, they treat him as if he's the pastor of the team. He's a high school kid that played quarterback and had to step back from it. They leaned on that faith statement. I find it amazing how Hollywood picks these core texts from the Bible to illustrate faith things. It's a God thing for them to get it right. And, I mean, this is just one of those things. It all starts with believing, and that's the point that both Moses and Isaiah are making. It all starts with believing. If you don't believe, then you can't trust. If you don't trust, you're not going to live a life of faith. It's that simple. Let's move on to verse 3. You turn man back into dust. And then you say, return, O children of men. A couple of simple things I want to expose you to here. You know, I've got a simple diagram up here. If you're a kid, it's a teeter-totter. If you're a really smart person, it's the scales of justice. However you want to view it, I couldn't make a picture of the scales of justice that was going to warrant this this morning. So we'll stick with this for now. But there is an everlasting God that stands as the foundation in the middle of all of this. And what is juxtaposed here is the idea of death and time. And in this case, God as that fulcrum balances death and time. This everlasting God that is the fulcrum rules outside of it. He's not bound by these two inevitable truths that we cannot escape. And the text simply says he controls man's life against these two pillars, death and time. I would say to you, what Moses' perspective is as he's working through this section, certainly dust takes us back to Genesis. It's a different word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when we, when we talk about that God breathed breath into man from dust. It's a different word, but it's the same idea that God is author over life. So I would say we... We, we get the benefit of hearing Moses speak to this with the idea of don't challenge God, rest in God. Don't challenge God, rest in God. Verses 4 through 6. I warned you I'm just going to speed through these things with just simple perspective observations. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night. You have, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Same idea here with God in that fulcrum position. But now we're kind of looking at two other ideas. The idea of a night watch and the idea of a thousand years first. I would say the night watch is reference to the people which would include us. At this time in history, a night watch was a really significant role for a person to play because it was during this four-hour period of time at night that it was most dangerous. You know, whether you lived in a walled city or a village or you were on a journey and you were all huddled around a campfire, during the middle of the night, 
was when marauders could come in, steal from you, kill people, create havoc. And they had to always be on the watch for that. If, if you're around this campfire, it could simply mean wild animals that were going to come in and, and create terror in the camp. This is what Moses is talking about when he talks about night watch. But he contrasts that against a thousand years is like yesterday to God. Here's the only observation I want to make about that. We could just spend so much time camped here. I just want to say this to you. These two things are equally important. The night watch was important to those people. And what Moses is contrasting, that although God is outside of time, and although a thousand years seems like yesterday, that yesterday is of significance to God, just like the night watch was for the Israelites. Every bit is important. It's not about, well, you know, we can't figure out anything about God, and you know, gee, 1,000 years, that sounds right. Why not 10,000? You know, why not 500? Here's, here's what I would suggest to you. If you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Peter kind of talks specifically about that, just to kind of highlight that. I marked this here in my Bible. Don't let this one thing escape your notice. That's verse 8. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now he's speaking in the present tense versus the yesterday tense, as Moses does. But here's the conclusion he draws. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Here's a comment I would make about time that Moses is thinking from a perspective point of view. God's a loving God. And even when we mess up, he gives us time to come back. He grants us the gift of time. It's an interesting concept that we don't have time to develop. Let me just say this. Moses' perspective, we think life is short. But for God, it's just the blink of an eye. I mean, it's a lot shorter. Well, there's a second illustration in these three verses, and there's a comparison of the flood and grass. You see, it says here, you have swept them away like a flood. Then it says they are like grass, which sprouts anew. These two things would be very apparent to someone living at this time. A flood is a real problem, and let's keep in mind we're in the wilderness area. So in the wilderness area of Israel, let's go when you come with us to Israel, you'll see these things. There are these sheer cliffs, these hollows, and there may be streams that are running out of them, but you have to be very, very careful because if that stream is fed from one of those sheer cliff valleys and there's a torrential downpour, it turns into a flash flood. And it just completely swells over like it's this giant river, and it comes very unexpectedly and very quickly, and it kills people and animals and washes them away. So when they hear flood, that's what they think. When they speak of grass, keep in mind, this is the wilderness. It's desert-like. So the grass that they're talking about here in this passage that Moses references is the kind that in, a, in an arid desert area, the temperature drops really low at night and humidity rises. So there's dew on the ground in the morning and it's cooler. Plants come to life. And then the scorching sun comes out and the heat raises and it just kills them off. So these are how Moses is using these two metaphors to describe what's 
going on in this passage. Let me just make this observation. When he talks about time, when he talks about life circumstances, which are the two things he's referencing here in these three verses, I believe that Moses' perspective is this. God's plan for us is bigger than this life. And we get caught up in it just being about this life. Verses 7 through 10. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it's gone, and we fly away. You know, what's Moses' perspective here? I want to just illustrate two things in this kind of busy slide. He says we're consumed by anger. Consumed is the idea that you're finished or spent. There's nothing left. And that God's anger has just completely overcome you. Second idea here with this term is that this would be the effectively in our humanity and the way that we think of things, his emotion applied to us. On the other side of this fulcrum is the idea that we're dismayed by his wrath. Something very different. Dismayed is the idea about being troubled, not trusting. That's what dismay is. I don't trust what's about to happen, and I'm really concerned about it. God's wrath is more about his actions, what he does from a judgment point of view as the God over all. Well, what sits in the middle of that? Why is there wrath? Why is there this idea of anger? It's our sin. It's our sin that sits in the middle of that. You know, Moses says, we only have 70 or 80 years. It's not that long. But what he's suggesting is that in that period of time, it's plenty of time for us to get right with God and for God to finish us, if you will. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, just in case you want to challenge Wayne on this idea, because this to me is a pretty significant idea. C.S. Lewis says this, in the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us. That face that is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned on each of us. Either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. Interesting comment. Verses 11 and 12. Let me say this. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? It's a continuation of what he has just said. Who understands it? But he says this, according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I'd like to make this just simple observation. For most of us, we live for today. Today's dead center in everything that we do. Often we don't get past today until tomorrow comes. Here's what Moses is saying. We live for today, but God instructs us to live today for eternity. Sounds like a small thing, but it's something worth thinking about. When I live out the mundane, ordinary moments of my life, 
Am I reacting to the moment? Or when the moment comes to me, am I first pausing and considering what eternal component of what is about to happen to me matters? You see, when I seek that, I'm looking for God's wisdom. And when I don't, I'm trusting in my own self. And that's an exact opposition to God. So I would just make this observation for you that this is not a new idea. And it's been there for all time. Let me read to you from Proverbs. My son, if you'll receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, and lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the ways of his holy ones. That's our God. This is who Moses is speaking about. It's an interesting thing to contemplate for a long time. Today is important, Moses says. Pursue God first, not yourself. Self-interest is in opposition to God. Verses 13 through 15. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. There's an interesting word picture that Moses paints here, and at the very center of it is this word hesed, loving kindness, that we talk often about here. It's the idea that God, in his sovereign will, applies grace. Grace in the moments, right when we need them, and not before. Moses accolades this in these verses, and he frames it under this idea of satisfaction. He says, oh, satisfy us. And then he says, make us glad. I want to read to you just two scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I think it perfectly coins where Moses is coming from. Therefore, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an internal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. They're temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58, Paul is summarizing just how hard it is to come to grips with the significance of the resurrection. And he makes this statement as his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
believe in this resurrection, if you are in the faith, if this is who you claim to be in your life, if you are certain that this is what God has for you, then consider this. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work isn't in vain. It's in the Lord. Here's the perspective I think that Moses brings to these verses. When it comes to life satisfaction and daily happiness, it's this. When I am content, I can only really experience contentment when God is at the center, not when I am at the center. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Interesting that Moses contrasts here work, personally, your work, my work, but the beneficiaries of that work are the people that you do the work for, the people that receive the outcome of the work. And here's the interesting thing. There's this legacy idea embedded in this simple verse that he carries on through the remainder of this psalm. And it's the idea that when we do our work, if we view our work through God's eyes, we tend to see the benefit of our work. And that work we're doing for somebody else that's going to receive a benefit. And here the text says, and their children will benefit from that. That's a legacy idea. You know, I've traveled the world in my business career. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about uh, the Far East, particularly China, somewhat Japan, they're losing it because they want to be like the United States. It's the idea that whatever work I'm doing, whatever thing I'm doing for my family today, I do it with the perspective that it has to touch four generations to the future. I'd make this observation, wow, what if your work was that way? What if you thought about your work from a perspective of not today or tomorrow, but three or four generations from now, how could it benefit it? You know, serving others is priority number one. That's Moses' perspective, and it will produce a lasting legacy. Remember what I said earlier? It starts with believing. You have to start with believing. Verse 17, the last verse in this passage says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Well, Paul, I mean, Moses concludes with this idea, we can get God's favor. I mean, he starts there. It it can come to us. It's not out of our reach. It's something that God is willing to give to us. Another word for favor that we could translate into our language would be blessing, that God's blessing can come to us. This is important for us to understand because if we don't believe that God blesses us, then our faith is useless. If we live in a world where fear garners everything in our life, then there is a question of are we trusting God? Are we believing God in faith? Derek Kinder, who is a theologian that writes a beautiful commentary on the Psalms, makes this 
comment in them. Good men are anxious not to work in vain. Good men are anxious not to work in vain. So why do we? I have a simple answer. I think Moses says it here. When we make it about us, and we don't make it about God, and we don't start with God at the center of our work, it's all in vain. Moses' perspective, our work has always been about people. It's not the work product. It's about the people that are touched with our work. And that includes those above us, those that are our colleagues, those that might report to us, and those that would be the customers of our work. We have a huge reach as people in this world as believers if we approach our work believing that God is at the center of it. Just something to think about. I don't mean to be all this heavy on y'all, but I think Moses is. Imagine, they're in the wilderness. They're three months out of Egypt. They're not really sure where they're going next. And Moses stops, and he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. I think that's a question that we should ask, a prayer that we should offer up. And if he does, then let us, let us agree that the confirmation of the, for the work of our hands, that word confirm, if we were to translate it literally from the Hebrew, it is to make permanent. The text says here that our work can be permanent. I don't often think that way. Moses declares it that way. You see, it's about legacy. That's really what matters to Moses and can for us. Here's his perspective. Seven things I outlined for you. I just want to read them as we finish up this morning. I just want you to reflect on these seven things and ask yourself this question. How do I perceive my life, my work, my perspective of God in my life? Here's what Moses says. God's worthy of praise. And the way that I praise him is the way that I live. Second thing he says is God's plan for us is bigger than this life. It just is. And when we can come to grips with that, it has an impact on the decisions we make, the things we say, and how we live this life. Third, you can't hide your sin from God. Remember in that verse he says the secret sins. There are no secret sins for God. Moses, when he's in the lament section of this psalm is acknowledging God's sovereign character, his all-seeing, all-knowing perspective of things. You can't hide sin from God. The fourth thing, today is important. Always has been. Always will be. The question is, do I have God at the center of it? Moses says, live for God, not yourself. The fifth thing, I find contentment when God is at the center of my life. If you're looking for contentment, can I just say this to you? When you turn to the Word of God, when you take it in, when you lift your voice to God in prayer, it is in those moments that you will experience peace that you cannot understand. If you choose to do it on your own, there's not to say that you cannot be successful for a period of time or for a moment, but true contentment is found only in God. Number six, serving others produces a lasting legacy that honors God. 
Serving others produces a lasting legacy that honors God. One thing, a story I'll tell you before I finish, number seven. You know, a number of you folks know we have a business south of here in Lewisburg, Tennessee. And I, I'll never forget when that business opened. Uh, and I don't remember, my son Wayne's here with me. He may have been standing with me. Uh, this husband and wife came up to us after the business had been open, maybe a couple of weeks. And we didn't have a problem hiring family members. And it's a poor area. And this, this couple just wanted to share with us that, that this husband had always had two or three jobs and had never been home for the kids. And he and his wife hadn't been out to dinner together or done anything together in years. And they wanted us to understand because we were willing to hire both of them and in a marketplace, we paid a higher wage than was in the marketplace. For the first time in his life, he got to coach his kids' ball team, and he and his wife had gone out together. Now, I don't know how that would impact you, but I was about in tears. Because what struck me was, that was just work. I was, we were just doing work. But because we did work from a perspective of trying to apply a Christian principle to that work, we had no idea the impact it had on lives. I, I want to tell you this morning, be encouraged. You are impacting lives. The question is, are you impacting them for Christ or are you reinforcing the theology of this world? That's what's on the table. Moses says serving others produces a lasting legacy that honors God. And then the last thing, work is always about the people and people always are worth working for. It is about the people.